This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. So Wozzeck was written by Albin Berg, a member of the Second Viennese School of Composition. Any guesses who belonged to the First Viennese School? If you guessed Haydn, Beethoven, and Mozart, you are correct. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we'll learn more about Berg's historical contribution to the world of opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. A champion of expressionism and atonality, Albin Berg wrote his first opera, Wozzeck, as a response to the chaos and tragedy he experienced during World War I. It is generally considered to be his greatest score, and it brought him international recognition and success. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on today's episode, we have lecturer and vice president of community initiatives for Opera Philadelphia, Michael Bolton, talking about Berg's groundbreaking work. Have you ever been lying in bed, about to escape the stresses of the day, slowly drifting off to sleep, when you feel like you're falling uncontrollably? You panic, unsure of when or how you will land. Maybe you're even falling to your death. Your body jolts and you wake up, confused by what has just happened. You've just experienced a myoclonus, or hypnic jerk. Those sudden, involuntary muscle spasms and contractions. Sufferers wake up and go back to sleep, or maybe you might be up for minutes or hours waiting to drift back to sleep. The entire process lasts only a second or less, but that sensation could also be used to describe the first two seconds of music in Alban Berg's Wozzeck. An eighth note and sixteenth note tone cluster collapses into a sixteenth note chord. That is how Wozzeck begins. But for this musical myoclonus, we're not waking up to a reality, but falling into a void, the nightmare that is Wozzeck. Alban Berg's opera is a harrowing tale of a soldier's descent into madness. If you're seeing William Kentridge's acclaimed new production at the Metropolitan Opera in its performances through January 22nd, or as part of the Met in HD series on January 11th, you're in for one of the most riveting operatic music theater experiences ever written. As Betty Davis said in All About Eve, buckle your seatbelts because it's going to be a bumpy night. Bumpy in that the opera culminates 
with Wozzeck killing his common-law wife Marie and his own suicide. And we, as audience members, are overwhelmed by the roller coaster of emotions that Berg packs into his thrilling 90-minute opera, especially when the performance is conducted by the Met's dynamic Jeanette Lerman-Neubauer music director, Yannick Nézé-Séguin. While a madness-murder-suicide plot might sound like something out of a Donizetti opera, we're far from the musical and dramatic language of the romantic and post-romantic composer's operas. Wozzeck was revolutionary at its premiere at the Berlin State Opera on December 14, 1925. Reaction to the opera was, unsurprisingly, divided. Its audacious musical language was scandalous to some and thrilling to others. Here is an opera that broke all of the rules of tonality in a triumphant way, but only in service to the drama. If we take a look at Wozzeck in context, of the 1925-26 season, it's no wonder that the opera sounded so revolutionary at its time. Let's look at the Met's repertoire for that season, and we find many of the titles that were core to the repertoire then and are core to the repertoire now. Aida, La Boheme, Tales of Hoffman, Parsifal, Tannhäuser, Tosca, Tristan and Isolde, etc. There are a few titles, though, that are presented that season that we don't really see too much today. Cornelius's Der Barbier von Baghdad, Weber's Der Freischütz, Massenet's Don Quixote, Wolferari's I Gioielli della Madonna, and Flotto's Marta, to name just a couple of them. But if we look and see what happens as far as new operas created at that time, we also get a sense of just how revolutionary Wozzeck was musically. So if we look at operas composed on either side of its premiere in 1925, what do we get? Puccini with La Rondine in 1917, Il Tritico in 1918, Strauss's Great Fantasy Di Frau Schatten in 1919, Janicek's Folksy Kaczegovanova in 1921, Puccini again in 1926, just after Wozzeck's premiere, with Turandot, of course Puccini was, was deceased at that point. We have Korngold's very lush, very romantic Das Wunder der Heliana in 26 also, and then Stravinsky with his very sort of linear and rhythmic Oedipus Rex in 1927. While some of these operas have narratives or musical styles that evolved from romantic or nationalistic forms, none of them uses the advanced musical language or traumatically dark dramaturgy that Berg displays with Wozzeck. The next important opera written with atonal elements after Wozzeck is Arnold Schoenberg's Moses und Aaron in 1932. Schoenberg would be an influential and crucial mentor to Alban Berg. The composer was born Alban Maria Johannes Berg on February 9, 1885, to an affluent family in Vienna, Austria. His father Conrad was an export salesman, and he owned several properties throughout Vienna and beyond. His mother, Johanna, was a devout Catholic and was the daughter of an Austrian imperial jeweler, and she also sold Roman Catholic items like Bibles and rosaries and prayer books in a shop. If, in his youth, Berg was more interested in literature than music, Berg, like any good middle-class or upper-class young man, studied piano with his sister's governess. It wasn't until he turned 15 years old that he taught himself music composition, and these early rudimentary works betray his lack of formal music education, but an inherent musical aptitude was obvious. 
During this period, Berg wrote more than 80 songs and piano duets, many of which have never been published. By 1900, the young Berg's life changed significantly when his father Conrad died, destabilizing the family's financial situation significantly. He'd never really been a diligent student in school, and he had to repeat two grades before graduating. That said, the conservative academic system in Vienna was described by Berg's friend Stefan Zweig as monotonous, heartless, and lifeless, where students heard nothing new or nothing that seemed to us worth hearing. Vienna was alive with new progressive thinking, but that element didn't make its way into the classroom. Several months after graduating, Berg answered a newspaper ad from a music teacher looking for students, and that teacher was composer Arnold Schoenberg. The 19-year-old Alban Berg met the 30-year-old Schoenberg, and Schoenberg recalled meeting Berg saying, when he came to me in 1904, he was a very tall youngster and extremely timid. But when I saw the compositions he showed me, songs in a style between Hugo Wolf and Brahms, I recognized at once that he had real talent. This talent influenced Schoenberg to take Berg on as a student, even though the young composer didn't have any money to pay for lessons. Schoenberg had recently completed his two uber-late romantic works, Pelias und Melisande and Verklärte Nacht. With Berg and composer Anton Webern among his first composition students, Schoenberg nurtured a group of composers under his tutelage who explored atonality and later Schoenberg's serial 12-tone technique. If Haydn and Beethoven and Schubert comprised the first Viennese school, Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern formed the foundation of the second Viennese school. Schoenberg instructed Berg in the basics of music theory and composition, harmony, strict counterpoint, plus musical architecture and construction. As these lessons progressed, Schoenberg writes to his publisher in 1910, celebrating Berg's progress. He says, He's an extraordinarily gifted composer, but the state in which he came to me was such that his imagination apparently could not work on anything but leader. He was absolutely incapable of writing an instrumental movement or inventing an instrumental theme. I removed this defect, and I'm convinced that in time, Berg will actually become very good at instrumentation. Berg studied with Schoenberg for seven years, ending in 1911 when Schoenberg moved to Berlin. The two remained friends, and Schoenberg was as much a father figure to Berg as he had been a teacher and musical influence. Berg could at times be racked with self-doubt, and he looked for Schoenberg's approval, particularly when writing his first large orchestral work, The Three Pieces for Orchestra. He writes to Schoenberg in 1914, saying, I always ask myself whether that which I'm expressing there is any better than the last things I've done. How can I judge this? He also wondered in writing if the three pieces for orchestra was something he could confidently dedicate to Schoenberg without incurring his displeasure. He did indeed dedicate the work to my teacher and friend Arnold Schoenberg in immeasurable gratitude and love. Wolzek's plot, a mentally unstable man murdering his prostitute common-law wife and committing suicide in a swamp, could have been pulled from a newspaper headline. In fact, it kind of was. The opera is based on Georg Büchner's play Wojciech, which was unfinished at the time of the author's death in 1837. But the play was inspired by the historic Johann Christian Wojciech, 
an erstwhile German barber who murdered his mistress, Johanna Christian Wust, in a jealous and mentally unstable rage. The murder case made headlines for years, as the court attempted to determine Wojciech's mental stability at the time of the murder. Born into poverty in Leipzig, Wojciech meandered through life trying to make some sort of living, and then he met Johanna Christian Wust. He resented that she had relations with other soldiers in Leipzig. During their relationship, he confessed to hearing voices urging him to kill her, and if he didn't initially act on those voices, he regularly abused her. He was even arrested and sentenced to eight days in prison for physical violence towards the 46-year-old mistress. Upon release, he was homeless and begged on the streets for food and money. But he managed to buy a broken sword blade and fitted a handle onto it. On June 21, 1821, Wust didn't show up for a prearranged meeting as she was with a soldier. Wojtek met her later that evening and, using his jerry-rigged sword, stabbed her seven times in a fit of jealousy, killing her in the doorway of her home. Beyond the actual violence itself, what made the murder so sensational and headline-grabbing was the defense strategy, that Johann Christian Wojtek was insane, even though there was evidence to support a crime of passion or even premeditation. It was the first time that an insanity defense had been used in Germany. Wojtek underwent many psychiatric evaluations over several years, with doctors reporting back to the courts. Doctors felt that Wojtek was sane enough to know the difference between right and wrong, despite that he experienced hallucinations. Johann Christian Wojtek was executed by beheading on August 27, 1824, in the Market Square with several thousand onlookers. It was the first public execution in Leipzig in 30 years, as well as the last public execution. Büchner left various drafts of 27 short scenes, none of which were numbered or grouped into acts. And from these, novelist Karl Emil Franzos drafted a version of the play which was published in 1879 as part of an anthology of Büchner's works. Büchner's handwriting was microscopically small and sometimes difficult to decipher that Franzos mistakenly titled the play Wozzeck. It took 34 years after publication for the world premiere of the play in 1913. Alban Berg attended the first Vienna performance of the play in May 1914, three months before the outbreak of World War I. Immediately, he knew he wanted to set it to music, he even began preliminary work on the opera, but military service got in the way. Berg was conscripted in 1915 and couldn't begin work on the opera until he was on leave in 1917. His time in the military helped connect him to the soldier's life and his titular character. He wrote to his wife, There is a bit of me in Wozzeck's character. Since I have been spending these war years just as dependent on the people I hate, have been in chains, sick, captive, resigned, and in fact, humiliated. In another connection to Wozzeck, Berg fathered a child out of wedlock shortly after his father's death in 1900. From 1917 to 1922, Berg worked on the opera in earnest. His mentor and friend Arnold Schoenberg felt Büchner's play was inappropriate material for an opera, and Berg hid the fact that he was writing Wozzeck, instead telling Schoenberg that he was writing a biography on him. Berg went about creating his own libretto for the opera rather than collaborating with a librettist. 
He was finished Act 1 and the first two scenes of Act 2 by the summer of 19, but he managed to make steady progress on the score and finished a short score by the fall of 21 and orchestration by the following spring. When he was finished composing and orchestrating the opera, Berg published the score himself. This was not atypical for him. He'd published some of his other works, at times hawking his own belongings to cover the costs. But to publish Wozzeck, he borrowed money from his sister's friend May Keller for the engraved vocal score, and composer Alma Mahler repaid the loan. Berg would in turn dedicate the score to her. Interest in Buchner's work was at a peak, and word got out that an opera was being written from Wojciech. But getting the opera produced was a difficult task. Despite thorough marketing efforts on his part, no opera company would stage the work, and Berg composed a concert suite from the opera, Three Fragments from Wojciech, which garnered critical acclaim for the music. Erich Kleiber, music director of the Berlin Staatsoper, decided to stage the opera's premiere. Reviews started to leak out after the dress rehearsal, and there's conflicting reports of anti-Schoenberg or pro-Schoenberg forces trying to work for or against Berg's opera. Reports sometimes false detail protests within the auditorium and even within the orchestra pit itself at some of the performances. Still, the opera received a total of seven performances in the world premiere run, and productions were planned immediately following that in Prague in 1926 and Leningrad in 27. By the late 1920s and early 1930s, there were 30 to 40 performances of the opera throughout Europe virtually each season. The opera arrived in the United States in a performance conducted by Leopold Stokowski in Philadelphia in 1931. But with the rise of the Nazi party, Wozzeck was determined to be degenerate art or music which was considered harmful or decadent and banned from further performances. The first performances at the Metropolitan Opera were in 1959 and in English. In constructing the opera, Berg slightly trimmed the 21 characters from the play to 12 in the opera. The primary characters are Wozzeck, a poor soldier. He is victimized by almost everyone in his life who play on his psychosis. He lives in crushing poverty and has a son with Marie, both of whom he clearly loves. He does get extra money from the captain and the doctor, which he then gives to Marie. She is his common-law wife and a former prostitute, and she is this sensual and vibrant woman who is unfulfilled in her relationship with Wozzeck. The captain is Wozzeck's superior officer, and he takes advantage of his power over Wozzeck, in turns mocking him in private and in public, sort of working with him is the doctor, this sort of camp physician. He also takes advantage of Wozzeck's deteriorating mental state, and Wozzeck it's kind of his medical guinea pig participating in dehumanizing medical experiments like eating only peas and holding his bladder for unrealistic amounts of time. The drum major is this handsome officer and cocky leader of the drum corps. He's all bravura, feels entitled to what he wants, and he thinks Marie can give him lots of little drum majors and beats up Wozzeck later in the opera. Andres is Wozzeck's friend and a fellow soldier. He's witness to his friend's downfall, but is unable to help him. And then finally we have Margaret. She's a contralto and Marie's neighbor. She is critical of Marie's interest in the drum major when Marie is in a relationship with Wozzeck. So when organizing Buchner's play into an opera, Berg chose 15 of Buchner's 27 scenes. 
organizing it into three acts and each act having five compact and quickly moving scenes. Most of Berg's scenes last eight minutes or so, with only a few flirting with the 10 minute mark. Some scenes are quite brief and the shortest one barely lasting two minutes. Rather than using traditional operatic musical conventions like arias and duets and trios, Berg structured each act in instrumental musical forms to help organize the drama like this. Act one is dramatically focused on Wozzeck and how he relates to his environment or a specific person in the drama. Musically, they're designed as five character pieces with the five scenes in the following musical forms. A suite, a rhapsody, a military march and lullaby, a passacaglia, and an andante affettuoso. Act two represents another stage in Wozzeck's gradual realization that Marie has been unfaithful. Act two is a symphony in five movements, sonata movement, fantasia and fugue, largo, scherzo, and then rondo con introduzione. And act three is the catastrophe, the downfall of Wozzeck. And that is performed in six inventions, invention on a theme, invention on a note of B natural, and that is the murder scene, invention on a rhythm, invention on a hexachord, a six note series or tone row, invention on a key, that being D minor, and that is an orchestral interlude, and invention on a regular quaver or eighth note movement. So if all of that seems intimidating and you're a little rusty on the difference between an invention and a passacaglia, don't worry. <laughs> Even the composer himself said, from the moment when the curtain goes up until it falls for the last time, there should be nobody in the audience who is aware of any of these various fugues and inventions, suites and sonata movements, variations and passacaglias. Nobody filled with anything but the idea of this opera, which transcends the individual fate of Wozzeck. Let's take a look now at uh, synopsis for the opera. Uh, we'll go by scene by scene briefly and then have some musical excerpts interspersed in between to show a couple of highlights. Scene one, uh, as the opera opens, as I mentioned earlier, we have that sense of falling. You know, we're like sort of jarred in our memory and jarred into a new kind of reality, that hypnic jerk. And the music that follows right after that is very sort of everyday. This is just what life is like. This is how things always are. Let's take a listen. Wozzeck we see working for the captain who is urging him to work slowly as he sets up a movie projector. Wozzeck is clearly aware of his place with his superior, frequently only responding, yes, captain. And the captain belittles Wozzeck in really abusive ways, calling him stupid and laughing at him. And the laughter is so intense that even the entire orchestra laughs with the captain, showing us how deeply the captain's ridicule affects Wozzeck. Voltec has been working for the captain, and his interaction with this boss has been very short and abrupt. Virtually the only word he says is Jawohl, Herr Hauptmann. But when the captain begins to criticize Voltec's morals for having a child out of wedlock, Voltec really starts to open up. Voltec starts by saying, Wir arme Leute, we poor people. 
It's a musical and dramaturgical theme that appears again and again throughout the opera. We see how crushed Wozzeck is by his own poverty and his lack of opportunity, and how he views himself as less than, blaming his inability to be virtuous on poverty. But this music is expansive and lyrical, emotional writing, the polar opposite of the captain's music. We hear Wozzeck's growing frustration of his situation in the music. Yet, in the midst of this oppressive life Wozzeck is mired in, there is still a, a noble, if conflicted, person. It's a lucid moment for Wozzeck, not trapped by hallucination or suspicion. Still, this is the everyday nightmare that Wozzeck lives. The captain interrupts him, reassuring Wozzeck that he's a good man, sure a good man. He encourages him to go on his way, but reminds him to go slowly, langsam, because a good person who has a clear conscience does everything slowly. Later, we see Wozzeck with his friend and fellow soldier Andres. Wozzeck proclaims that the field therein is cursed. And in the midst of this growing hallucination, Wozzeck confesses to Andres that he is frightened by these visions. So Andres just tries to distract him with this song, but to no avail. Wozzeck hears noises, 
thinks the ground below them is hollow. And as the sun goes down, Voltec misinterprets the light of the sunset as the earth having caught on fire. What's interesting in this scene is that it shows how traumatic Voltec's inner world can be and how uncontrollable. As lucid as Voltec was with the captain, here he's lost in his own world. And to demonstrate Voltec's state of mind, Berg musically sets most of Voltec's text in this scene as Sprechgesang, an expressionist technique somewhere between singing and speaking. The music is noted in the score to give the performer a sense of the notes the text should be vocalized on. And Arnold Schoenberg, who developed the technique, said, The sung tone maintains the pitch unaltered. The spoken tone does indicate it, but immediately abandons it again by falling or rising. The difference between ordinary speech and speech that collaborates in a musical form must be made plain, but it should not call singing to mind either. Here's an example of the Sprechgesang of Scene 2 of Wozzeck. We can hear the difference between singing and Sprechgesang and how Sprechgesang becomes more extreme as Wozzeck's hallucinations get more intense. At the height of Wozzeck's delusion, listen as we hear the captain's laughing motive that we just heard before echoing in Wozzeck's mind. In scene three, Marie stands at her window with their son and Margaret, their neighbor. A military band marches by and Marie comments on how handsome the drum major is and the two make eye contact. Margaret is critical of Marie's flirtation with the drum major and Marie slams the door shut. In talking to her child, she calls her son just a whore's child. Even though a priest has not blessed his face, she tells him, he brings her so much joy and she sings a lullaby to him as he falls asleep. And as Marie sings, we hear the duality of her personality. She is a sensuous woman filled with desires that are just not being fulfilled. But at the same time, she's trying to be a thoughtful mother. And Berg shifts back and forth between the internal and external Maries in this lyrical moment from Act 1, Scene 3. Mädel, was 
Voltec arrives and is still overwhelmed and distracted by the visions in the field. Marie tries to comfort Voltec, but he rushes back to the barracks without even greeting their child. And Marie is anguished over Voltec's state. She too sings, Vir Aumaloit, we poor people. She says, I cannot stand it, and she runs out of the room, leaving her child alone. Voltec then visits the doctor, who pays him a few pennies to participate in his bizarre medical experiments. He's put Voltec on a diet consisting only of peas, believing that all physical actions are controllable by free will. The doctor is upset because he saw Voltec relieving himself in the street like a dog. Voltec says that nature takes precedence, and the doctor chastises Voltec for not being in control of his own body. Voltec tells the doctor of his disturbing visions, and the doctor feels that this could be an opportunity to make a grand scientific discovery. He tells Voltec that he's an absorbing case, that he'll get an extra penny if he keeps up the good work. On the street in front of Marie's house, the drum major flirts with her. She says he has a chest like a bull and a beard like a lion, and he calls her a wild animal and that they can breed little drum majors together. She tries to fight him off at first, but concedes, saying, what's the use? It's all the same. And the two disappear out the door. As Act 2 opens, Marie is looking at herself in a bit of a broken mirror, admiring a pair of earrings the drum major has given her. She teases her son about the Sandman a little when Voltec enters unexpectedly. Marie unsuccessfully tries to hide the gold jewelry. He asks how she got them. When Voltec sees them, she lies and claims she found them in the street. He's suspicious. Usually, one earring is found in the street, but she found a matching pair? He comments that his son, now asleep, is sweating, saying that even we poor people have to work in our sleep. He gives her the meager coins that he has earned from the captain and the doctor and leaves. Marie is overwhelmed with guilt, so much so that she says she could stab herself. The captain and the doctor meet in the street, and the doctor is running off quickly when the captain tries to tell him that a good man moves slowly. The sadistic doctor taunts the nervous captain with predictions of a pending stroke, but it's just part of the cruel jokes they play on people. Voltec passes by, and he becomes the brunt of their cruelty. They make fun of him, insinuating that Marie has been unfaithful. He is shocked, unable to even form sentences easily, and Voltec begs them not to joke about the only good thing in his life before he rushes off. Voltec finds Marie and confronts her, saying that the stink of her sin drives angels out of heaven, and she says he's mad. He orders her for details, even threatens to hit her, but she says she'd rather have a knife in her heart than allow him to touch her. She leaves, and Voltec ponders this idea. It's terrifying how repulsed Marie is by him, but equally terrifying to look into the abyss of this nightmare's darkness. Voltec enters a beer garden and sees Marie and the drum major on the dance floor. This confirmation of the captain and the doctor's accusations send Voltec into darkness. The soldiers and guests at the beer garden sing a song as Andres shares a verse about a promiscuous woman. A fool approaches Wozzeck and tells him he smells blood. This adds to Wozzeck's state of mind and he thinks he sees blood-covered people rolling all over each other. 
That same evening in the barracks, Wozzeck can't sleep, replaying the events of the beer garden in his mind. He sees a flashing, like light hitting a knife blade. He prays to God, saying, Only, lead us not into temptation. A drunken drum major stumbles back into the barracks, boasting of a new conquest. When asked who it is, the drum major mockingly says that they should ask Wozzeck. The two fight as the drum major continues to insult Wozzeck, leaving Wozzeck knocked down and bloodied. Wozzeck just says, one after the other. The scene opens with this atmospheric and hushed chorus, which is supposed to sound like snoring, as Wozzeck wakes from this nightmare. The music Berg uses for the confrontation between the drum major and Wozzeck is the same he used to end the first act, the confrontation between the drum major and Marie. Here again, we see the drum major getting what he wants, whether it's a conquest in Marie or defeating his romantic rival with Wozzeck. But for Wozzeck, it is the final humiliation. Every major person in his life has physically or emotionally abused him, taken advantage of him, or made him to feel unworthy or unimportant. He literally has nothing left. Let's listen to Act 2, Scene 5 from Wozzeck. Stand, frag er den Gott 
Act 3 opens and we see Marie reading from the Bible. It's not the first time either she or Wozzeck have reached out for spiritual guidance. And she's racked with guilt for her transgressions and tries to find comfort in the Bible. When her son comes in, she starts to sing a little tale about a poor child with no father or mother, foreshadowing the opera's ensuing scenes. She turns to the Bible again, begging God for his mercy. It's one of the most moving scenes in the entire opera. Marie trapped between guilt and her need for forgiveness. The scene blends singing with Sprechtgesang seamlessly interwoven. At this moment, Marie goes beyond just telling her child a story, but Berg brings us deep into her soul. We cry with her, and she cries inside, unable to show her child that vulnerability.
Later, Marie and Wozzeck walk near a pond in the woods to get back to town. Marie wants to hurry back, but Wozzeck convinces her that it's been a long walk and she needs to rest her feet. He makes veiled remarks about her fidelity, and he comments that she's shivering and that those who are cold don't freeze anymore. The moon rises and Marie remarks that it is blood red tonight, which almost acts as a trigger for Wozzeck. He takes out a knife and kills Marie. Scholars have written about leitmotifs in Wozzeck. The note of be natural is the symbol for the murder. And Berg uses it as the last note we hear at the end of Act 2. It's the first and last notes we hear in the murder scene. And as the murder takes place, we hear the timpani pulsing on a B as Wozzeck pulls out the knife and kills Marie. This is followed by one of the most spectacular moments in all opera. The entire orchestra resounds on a B from pianissimo to fortissimo to chilling effect. Not only is it the only time that we've heard the orchestra unified in the opera, but the sound itself is terrifying yet thrilling. Sit up. 
After the murder, Wozzeck goes to a tavern. He sees Margaret, and she notices blood on his hand, and others start shouting at him when they see blood on his sleeve. Wozzeck runs out of the pub. Going back to the pond in the woods, Wozzeck tries to find the murder weapon. He stumbles upon Marie's body and asks if she earned her red collar around her neck, like the earrings with her sin. He finds the knife and throws it into the water. He wades into the water to throw the knife further out so it won't be discovered and to wash the blood off his hands. Meanwhile, the doctor and the captain pass by. They both hear the moans of a man drowning in the water, but they both wait until the night becomes still again and proceed on their way as Wozzeck dies. The next morning, a group of children are playing Ring Around the Rosie in the street. The neighborhood children tell Marie's son that his mother is dead as the other children rush off to the pond to see the dead body. Eventually, the child follows his friends. It's one of the most heartbreaking and profound scenes in all of opera. Transparently scored as the woodwinds go back and forth as if to start a trill, but it never happens. And at the end, the music just stops. The nightmare might be over for Wozzeck and Marie, but for these Armaleute, a life filled with sorrow and tragedy is inescapable. We've heard excerpts from Wozzeck from a video produced by the Metropolitan Opera starring Katharina de Leimann as Marie and Falk Struckmann as Wozzeck, Graham Clark as the captain, and John Horton Murray as Andres, all conducted by James Levine. So if you're going to see Wozzeck in HD, this is a shattering new production by William Kentridge. It premiered on December 27th, and the New York Times hailed the production as extraordinary, resourceful, and visually arresting. Kentridge is no stranger to the Met and has had two incredibly successful and thought-provoking productions in the recent past, Shostakovich's The Nose in 2010 and Berg's Lulu in 2015. Kentridge's first encounter with the subject was in 1990 when the Handspring Puppet Company 
collaborated with him on a production based on Buchner's play. However, he chose to set the opera in the era in which it was written, circa World War I. He wanted to create a landscape using the graininess and the gray of charcoal drawings that was evocative of the era. So several backdrops project images of explosions and fires, and there are about 60 original charcoal drawings, many of which have been manipulated through computer animation. And these images act both as scene setting, but also insights into the characters haunting and haunted inner world, and sometimes act as a foreshadow of things to come. It's a unit set comprised of a series of very narrow and steep duckboards or walkways and several playing areas. There's a large flight of stairs upstage right that seemingly goes nowhere, and in the center of the set is Marie's home. Upstage right of that is a multi-purpose armoire which acts as various offices and settings throughout the opera. Downstage left is a collection of chairs and more that act as a dumping ground of sorts. So we see throughout the opera, Wozzeck and sometimes Andres carrying chairs into this area. And Wozzeck is regularly carrying chairs throughout the opera, almost as if he's carrying his own emotional baggage around with him. And in some scenes, like the first tavern scene, several bar patrons are dancing with chairs, and they too are part of Wozzeck's internal nightmare. Yet Wozzeck deposits many of these chairs downstage left, and this pond of emotional baggage is where Wozzeck drowns himself at the end of the opera. There are several supernumeraries on stage throughout the entire opera wearing gas masks and dressed in various medical or military costumes. They move during the orchestral interludes, moving in jerky, almost Frankenstein-like manner. Maybe they too have been victims of the doctor's unethical medical experiments. And gas masks are seen frequently throughout the opera. Marie and Wozzeck's son, portrayed through a puppet, also wears a gas mask. And we see several members of the chorus in gas masks, and these masks also appear frequently in the projections. This production is headed by an extremely talented and wonderful cast of singing actors, many of whom have appeared on the in HD series. Peter Matei stars in the title role, a role new for him, of course, he made his Met debut in 2002 as the Count in Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. He's been in HD broadcasts of The Barber of Seville, Parsifal, The Marriage of Figaro, Tannhäuser, and Eugene Onegin. Another singer in a role debut is Elsa Vandenhever. This is the sixth role at the Met for the South African soprano. She's been in HD broadcasts of Maria Estuarda and Idomeneo. As the captain, tenor Gerhard Ziegel, who has been such an incredibly memorable mima in the ring cycle of the Met, He's also been the witch in Hansel and Gretel and Herod and Zalame in the house. British tenor Christopher Ventris is the drum major. This is his first HD broadcast, and he's previously been seen at the Met as Steva in Yenufa. Christian Van Horn, the American bass, who was such an amazing Mephistophele for the Met last season, is the doctor. You may have seen him in HD broadcasts of Falstaff, the Zauberflöte, or the Exterminating Angel. Andrew Staples, also from Great Britain, made his Met debut with this production. Roles elsewhere have included Froh in Das Rheingold, Fenton and Falstaff, Faust in Damnation of Faust, and others. And rounding out the main cast is Tamara Mumford, the mezzo-soprano from Tabor, California. She made her Met debut as Laura in Louisa Miller in 2006. You may have seen her in HD broadcasts of Die Zauberflöte, Manolesco, Nixon in China, Anna Bolena, The Ring, and several others. 
And finally, of course, we cannot forget Jeanette Lehrman Neubauer Music Director Yannick Nézé-Séguin. In this capacity since the 2018-2019 season, he made his Met debut conducting a new production of Carmen in 2009. At the time of the HD broadcast, he will be just shy of 100 performances at the Met. We've seen him in HD broadcasts of Carmen, Faust, Don Carlo, Rusalka, Otello, La Traviata, Dialogues of the Carmelites, and Turandot. As I said, keep your seatbelts buckled for an incredible ride through the entire opera. It is a riveting, extraordinary opera, and I hope you will find it to be the brilliant 20th century masterpiece it is. Thanks for listening to this broadcast. That was Michael Bolton talking about Wozzeck. South African artist William Kentridge's astonishing production of Wozzeck is currently on stage at the Met through January 22nd, and you can see it in cinemas worldwide on January 11th, 2020, live in HD. For more information, visit metopera.org, and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platform to keep up with all things opera. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.